did it there to you. On purpose. Did it on purpose. <laughs> I have a uh, rhetorical question I would like to ask. And that it came about. Uh, some guy wrote me a note here saying, he said, Shepard, I just don't think... First of all, I, I, the reason I don't believe this is because I don't think that the average family, uh, before television, went to the movies much more than maybe once a month, if that. I'd say maybe once a month. That's about it. And maybe, how long is a movie? 90 minutes, give or take a few minutes. And to believe that a whole generation of people were influenced by 90 minutes once a month, man, there's something wrong. Something wrong. That is absolutely a great fallacy. Now, the reason I think that critics often write this way, I mean, people like Pauline Kael and that, who are great film critics, is because they themselves were hung on movies as a kid. They might have been the one kid in the, you know, in the school that did nothing but go to movies all the time. And there always were those kids. But the great body of people, kids, just didn't go to that many movies. I had other things to do. And so when Saturday afternoon came, and there were always a large number of little skinny kids with thick glasses who trooped off to go to the movies, I trooped off to play second base. <laughs> Along with thousands of other kids. So I just don't buy this thing that people were influenced, except certainly there was a minority that was. But I don't believe that many people out of a hundred, certainly way less than the majority, were actually influenced by movies. I'll just lay that out for what it's worth. I don't believe it. Just simply don't believe it. It has not been proven to me that this is so. And uh, to read to read movie critics, and to even see certain movies like... Uh, uh, the last picture show, for example, it's a, it's a, it's a, it, you know, you you you'd uh, you'd believe that people all of their lives sat around and looked at movies when they were growing up. I they didn't do that. <laughs> In my experience, I don't find this true. Now, my experience may be different from yours, but I simply have not. I have yet to be convinced that a, a, you know, millions of people were influenced by the movies. I think they might have been occasionally amused by the movies. They might have been, uh, they might have been uh, even quite possibly a few styles. People would imitate a style or something. But to believe that there was an influence philosophically in any other way, I simply don't buy it. And anybody that sits around and writes a play about how he fantasizes you know, writing fantasies about how we would like to be Humphrey Bogart and so on, is either very sick or is writing something that's just simply commercial. Because I don't believe it was true. Simply don't. And, uh, and I, I, uh, I, I, I was hit by that the other day because, and then you're going to ask me, well, you know, people say, well, what were you influenced by? I was not influenced by the movies. You know what I suggest that more people were influenced by? Because, see, an influence is something that is a steady a steady force, a regular force that is applied to you. Now, you're not going to be influenced on some, by something that you only see very rarely. And a movie, uh, you know, a movie was a thing that was quite unusual, I suspect, in most people's. And not because they didn't have the money. Don't assume that we're talking about poor people who couldn't afford movies. That, incidentally, is what a critic would believe, that if they had the money, they would have gone to the movies. Not so. 
Maybe you and your particular hang-up would have done that, but I don't believe that the average person uh, living in average community surroundings was as hung on movies as, say, the average writer, serious writer today, about the movies would lead, would lead you to believe. And nobody really questions this. They simply, it's one of those great truisms. Yes, a whole generation were influenced by the movies. And uh, the great, uh, oh, come on. I don't buy this. <laughs> In fact, I, I'll bet, I'll bet during my growing up time, I'll bet that, that uh, quite possibly is an influence. Well, I'll tell you what an influence is. I think a lot of writers today, and I suspect even including me, a lot of writers were influenced by comic strip continuity. I think, say, Tom Wolfe, uh, the contemporary Tom Wolfe, you know, Zowie, Wham, Pow. Uh, this is not movie talk. This is comic strip writing. Pow, wham, zowie. And uh, I suspect that a lot of the a lot of the plays were influenced the play contemporary so called the theater of the absurd, for example, is far more a theater of the comic strip than it is a theater of old movies. Uh, just uh, the blackout, the the uh, the pow punchline, the uh, the caricature, the people who absolutely are not real people. I mean, nobody could nobody could actually say that any any character that Jules Pfeiffer, for example, has ever written into a play bears any re uh, resemblance to a real person. They're caricatures, comic strip caricatures at that. And so I think that the comic strip really has influences a great deal. And uh, and I think even even more uh, sexually and morality wise, they've influences. You know, uh, would, who would you say reads comic strips to begin with? Well, that's an interesting point. Uh, I, there's a piece just came on. I'm going to read something to you. That uh, and, and what comic strips specifically influenced you? Now, a lot of people would, you know, the comic strips. I was not influenced at all. I mean, as a kid, I used to read the comic strips. We got papers. And, and of course, it varies from, country to, from section of the country to section of the country. A lot of comic strips appeared in certain parts of the country that never appeared out here. For example, when I first came to New York... Uh, Charlie Brown, the Peanuts, the contemporary Peanuts, was very big in the Midwest, and nobody had ever heard of it out here. The paper, in other words, no paper locally here simply carried it, that's all. So the people out here didn't hear about it until it was a well-established thing in certain other parts of the country. But uh, 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 now I want to read this piece because I agree a, a lot with what this... This writer says, a, a writer named Patricia McCormick, who writes for UPI, and this appeared in the Sunday Bulletin in Philadelphia. And uh, it says, Dateline, New York. It says, in those families featured in the American funnies, the mother and wife always comes out the supreme power. Now, <laughs> as in the beginning of comics. In other words, the, the mother is always the big thing in, in the comic strips. No one dares suggest that's why they're called comics or jokes or funnies. But the fact is that the world of comics is a total matriarchy. Do you ever think about that? Listen, the wife and or mother has been the undisputed heavyweight since comics and American art form first made the scene in a big way. How many years ago do you think they first made it? Seventy-five years ago. Maurice Horn, who verified that observation 
in an interview, designed the current, quote, 75 years of comics exhibit at the New York Cultural Center in association with Fairleigh Dickinson University. The exhibit, featuring more than 300 examples of comic art, runs uh, for till November 7th. It is drawing like, well, the comics. A lot of people, this, I'm quoting this, a lot of people. A medium which reaches daily into almost every home in the Western world. I take real issue with people who believe that the movies influence people. I think it's comics, far more in a subtle way. Horn, an authority on funnies, a neglected American art form. I don't believe that either. I don't think they're neglected. <laughs> if anything, I think people read them too much. A neglected art form. Also is the author of 75 years of comics and so forth. Through the years of the funny papers, there have been slight changes in the role of wife and mother, but ever so slight, according to Horn. And we quote Horn here. It is clear-cut in Maggie and Jiggs that Jiggs is henpecked, he said. If you remember Maggie and Jiggs. But in a more modern comic strip, High and Lois, though, High is henpecked also, but far more subtly, not as poorly off as Jiggs, but subtly. When Lois does her nagging, in the strip, she appears to use contemporary preachments on marital happiness, apparently using more psychology and fewer flung vases to convince High that he is in the doghouse and he better get in line. Now, I'd like to point out that even holds true in in uh, Peanuts, the Charlie Schultz column. You know, uh, Schroeder. After all, Lois. You know who Lois is? What, isn't that her name, Lois? Or what's her name, Lois? The loudmouth girl. Is it Lois? She completely henpecks everybody. Yeah, that's right. And and in other words, he is he is falling. It's right in the, the mainstream. A lot of people who think uh, Schroeder and Lois, uh, you know, and all that crowd are really unusual and new. And he's, he's right in the mainstream of the comics. The hero is almost always a loser and has been for years. Well, look at Bumstead. Bumstead's always getting yelled at by the boss. <laughs> he gets yelled at by his wife. He even gets yelled at by the mailman. And and so he's a loser. He's really grown up. He's grown up uh, Charlie Brown is what he is. This is my own observation. But they, they fit right into a, a category all the time. And uh, we go on with the article. It says, what is interesting about the matriarchal family lifestyle perpetrated by the comics is that most comic strips are imaginations of the male. They're products of the male imagination. Almost all comics are written by men, with the possible exception of a few. Uh, Brenda Starr, for example, is uh, written by a woman. Anyway, he says, the, quote, the fact that they cast the family as a matriarchy most often doesn't necessarily mean that their family lifestyle is the same, Horn said. It's just the style they endorsed for the comics. It's funnier, after all, this is a quote, to have a guy picked on by his wife than it is to have a guy nag his wife. And then he goes on to say, in fact, there seems to be an unwritten rule that the wife in a comic strip doesn't get harmed physically no matter how furious a marital spat becomes. Jiggs, for example, has suffered from Maggie's hands, such things as black eyes, lumps on the head, and other injuries, but never has he even so much as raised a hand to Maggie, although he has outwitted her on rare occasions. Another famous comic couple, Blondie and Dagwood, didn't start out married in the comics. Quote, Blondie was a gold digger, and Dagwood was a rich young man, Horn said. Readership in the strip just didn't go. The strip was uh, said wasn't happening. And so Dagwood and Blondie got married. 
he became a hand-pecked husband, and readership went up instantly, which is significant. Maybe the cartoonists giving the readers hand-pecked husbands are simply showing American women the way they would prefer their role in marriage. And here's an interesting point. Horn said that many more women, far more women than men, read comics and are steady readers of comic strips. Did you know that? I didn't. I don't know where he gets that figure, but that's what he says. It says, children, since the beginning of American comics, have always tried to outwit their parents and have been almost always successful. The Katzenjammers are the most famous of all, Horn said. There's a kind of morality about the strip as the kids go about their trickery. Quote, the morality is that you can do what you please for fun, but you do so at your own peril, Horn said. The kids get spanked. In a more recently conceived pesky kid strip, Dennis the Menace, the punishment for wrongdoing is less violent. Dennis is always sitting in a corner or gets sent to bed without dinner or suffers less violent chastisement. In other comics of relatively recent origin, there are two clashing moralities about behavior. That, evidenced by Walt Kelly in Pogo, and that, perpetuated by Charles Schultz in Peanuts. They both are opposing each other. And it's interesting that Pogo, as a strip, has gone down recently in, you know, boom, has had to do with the cult of loser among kids today. I, I find a lot of kids really are very pleased at the fact that they failed or or that they they were, you know, that that somehow they're they're losers. I've, I've, I've seen this in a lot of schools, and I, and I just, just hear it. You know, I hear it talk, and the guy will say with a great deal of pride uh, something to the effect of, well, <laughs> after all, you know, uh, I, you know, I sure I flunked, Matt, I, I flunked the trig. <laughs> it's great, you know. Somehow that shows he's a more honest man if you flunk trig or something, a better man. But the, the idea of loser is a big important thing, and I, and nobody points this out about Schultz. They always talk about him as biblical. I don't see any biblical parallels in uh, his work, because after all, Christ was anything but a loser. Uh, <laughs> he was much more than that. Anyway, some, contempor- some contemporary comics preach, as pioneer ones did. The most famous of all is Orphan Annie, of course, preaching all the time. The contemporary ones taking on big issues include Rex Morgan, M.D. In recent episodes... The Morgan Strip has handled nervous breakdowns, alcoholism, and a strange case of brain damage, interfering with speech and recall functions, and so forth. But the the one he doesn't mention here, which is constantly preaching, is Mary Worth. Mary Worth always shows up suddenly, and she explains to whoever the heroine is of the time, if you've seen that strip at all, ultimately... what the meaning of marriage is or what the meaning of morality is. You've seen that strip, constantly preaching. Now, I'm I'm just curious if a person who who never goes to any kind of, say, a a church, he never never reads anything serious in his life. Uh, And and every day, this person sits on the subway and reads Mary Worth and gets these continual little capsule lectures on the Hard work, after all. Mary Worth is always saying things like this. Hard work, after all, Barbara, is its own reward. A person who works hard, a person who is true to himself, this will be the person, ultimately, who will realize true happiness in life. And uh, Barbara's always looking very worried, looking down 
and in the background you see the villain saying curses foiled again you know the the guy named Steve there's always somebody who's trying to get to these <laughs> girls in this strip and they're always bad guys who want to take them off to a commune or something like that but uh, nevertheless uh, I'm just curious how many people have been influenced by comic strips as opposed to uh, to uh, movies and I'm making a prediction right now and uh, this pompous type prediction but uh, I suspect that in three or four years, somebody will stop, you know, they'll stop this business of uh, uh, talking about uh, the unappreciated art form. I think the comic strips are probably one of the few appreciated art forms in America. The average American really looks at the comic strips more than anything else. So how can you call it an unappreciated art form? (laughs) What they really mean by that is there haven't been any pompous essays written about it. Appreciated, yes. Uh, lauded, no. I suspect that may be it. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I suspect within a few years, somebody's going to come out with a real long, involved essay about the effect upon uh, a whole generation of people, the morality of uh, the comic strips has had on on people. And then, of course, that's going to be a big cause celeb. It'll appear in New York Magazine and Gloria Stein, and we'll uh, subscribe to it, and then it'll be official. But... uh, at this point now, we continue to believe that movies did it. What was what was the one strip? Uh, would you guess what strip, uh, as a kid, the one that I read most, judging from my work, and that influenced me? I, I, was, I really wasn't the Popeye fan. I wasn't a fan of... Uh, of uh, particularly uh, any, any of these... Uh, I never looked, never looked at Orphan Annie or Annie, any of those, those things. I, I, I didn't, for some reason or other, they didn't do anything to me. And for a while, I went through my uh, my uh, Mandrake the Magician phase, but that was very brief. Who do you think I always looked at? Did you ever hear of Smokey Stover? You never heard of Smokey? Okay. <laughs> no way to talk to you then. You never heard of Smokey Stover? Well, maybe you called it something else here. That could be. Because don't think that strip was old. That strip only, I, I suspect, only disappeared about three or four years ago. That's, that's not a new... Smokey Stover. Well, did you ever hear... What, what was always said in the strip, Smokey Stover? Did you ever hear the expression, Notary Sojak? You have, or are you just saying that? Well, that, that was always said. In, in every strip, there was a little guy holding up a sign that said, Notary Sojak. Smokey Stover was this fireman. <laughs> and uh, it was a completely maniacal strip. Had absolutely no... Re- well, among other things, above it was another strip that uh, was written by, drawn by the same guy. And there was a character in the strip that always walked around with a coal scuttle over his head. And he was always hitchhiking. What did he say all the time? Nob schmaz kapop. <laughs> That's all he said. Nob schmaz kapop. He was hitchhiking. Complete absurdity. And and uh, and I, I remember one time it was explained in the strip. One of the characters asked the other character, "Well, how come he always wears that coal scuttle over his head?" And the other one says, "Well, he's he's prepared." He said, "What do you mean prepared for what?" He said, well, he figures you never can tell. 
The other guy says, what do you mean you never can tell? Never can tell what? What's he prepared for? He says, well, he figures you never know when you're going to get hit by a meteor. <laughs> there he stood <laughs> with a coal scuttle. And, and uh, Charles Schultz stuff. There's a curious, stark simplicity about it. Even his drawing wasn't as uh, kitschy and as cutie pie as it is now. The drawing changed. And I'm not one of these people who always say, you know, the early stuff was great. But the very early Schultz was very interesting. And, and it, he hadn't gotten into all this. Uh, uh, in other words, it would have been conceivable in the early strip that Charlie Brown could conceivably have won a ball game. He was always, when he lost, he always barely lost. He lost the way you do in life. Well, when if, if you're doing kitsch, you lose 149 to nothing. And incidentally, nobody ever has lost a ball game that I know of, 149 to nothing. And that's the difference between kitsch and art. In kitsch, it's 149 to nothing. In art, he loses the last minute always, uh, always, uh, by turning his head at the wrong time and looking at somebody in the grandstand. He loses 2 to 1 just when it looked like he was about to win. The Achilles heel. That's art. Kitsch is 149 to nothing, invariably. And the, and they with a dog playing the outfield and complaining that his glove isn't right today. Uh, that's kitsch. <laughs> and so uh, the the, uh, the the whole I think the whole thing of, of uh, comics has really influenced. Now I, I uh, influenced all of us, whether we know it or not. Even our language, even our language. The pow pow is right out of the comic strips. A wild that's out of the comic strips. Uh, things like zap. Well, you know, that's a comic strip. Who used the word zap first? You know, to really zap somebody. Where did that come from? You've heard the expression zap him? He really got zapped. This is a clear example of that kind of uh, influence of language. You mean you don't, you've never heard the expression a zap gun? Well, who was that? Who had a zap gun? Well, that was Buck Rogers. Buck Rogers had a thing called a zap gun. He, he called it that. It was like slang, his own slang, say. And what he really, what he was really using was a thing called a, uh, a something, oh, I had a long name, like a modular atomic disintegrator gun. It was a disintegrator gun. But he also says, give me the zap, and the gun would go zap. And so the, the term zap came out of that comic strip as a term meaning somebody got zapped. That meant he got disintegrated by the zap gun. And so all over, everywhere you go, you see these little tiny influences and, and hardly anybody recognizes them. I don't remember many phrases that people picked up out of movies. Really, out of, maybe something like, my little chickadee. That's about the extent of it. Or, uh, Judy, Judy, Judy. <laughs> uh, something like that. Uh, but but uh, our language is laced with comic stripisms now. The word jeep which is still part of our language. Where did Jeep come from? Popeye. Goon. Who was Alice the Goon? You know, you hear labor goons? Goon. The word goon came out of Popeye, too. Uh, and dozens and dozens of terms. I mean, so many of them that you could probably sit down and, and take any average writer who's writing a novel and pick out, out of that average novel, probably 35 words that originated and became really popular phrases, attitudes in comic strips. Zap, pow, wham. Comic strip 
pure and simple. Uh, for example, I think the comic strips were the first people to actually see humor in uh, office life. Tilly the Toiler. Wally Wimple. <laughs> the whole scene. Smitty. Uh, in fact, uh, I, I think attitudes, uh, more than just specific words and phrases, I, 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 I would venture to say that more people got science fiction out of comics than ever out of science fiction novels. The whole concept of, of um, moon exploration. The whole thing. All right, uh, here, let's take, uh, take another one. Uh, what, what, uh, what continent did, uh, usually, did a man named Ming control? Ming. Better known as Ming the Merciless. He was really a reincarnation of Dr. Fu Manchu. Ming the Merciless. What was his continent? You mean you don't know what continent he was from? You mean you've never heard of Mongo? And, uh, and, <laughs> and, and why was Flash Gordon sent to Mongo? What kind of, what kind of historian are you? You mean you don't know these things? Ming the Merciless? What was the name of, uh, what was the name of, uh, Ming's arch henchman? Well, what was the name of Flash Gordon's chick? You're talking to a man of great knowledge here tonight. Anybody who knows uh, who Dave's delicatessen, and who also knows, <laughs> and who also knows, uh, well, I'll tell you, uh, in the very early uh, Charles Schultz script, and by the way, he does Peanuts, in case you don't know who Charles Schultz is. Peanuts referred to just little kids. Peanuts. You know, peanuts. Uh, somebody played the piano before the current kid played the piano. Their character suddenly shifted for some reason. Who was it? That's contemporary history, so you thought you knew everything, didn't you? Uh-huh. But a girl who was very important in that strip long before Lois came on the scene. But the, but the point is, she didn't make it because she was a victim just like all the rest of the kids. Only when a very mean girl came on the scene and henpecked Poor little, uh, poor little uh, Charlie Brown. Did she become popular? And did the script become popular? Aha! Meanings everywhere. Yes, Bella Abzug's influence is all over the world. Yeah.